Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This way. one of the happiest days of my life. Oh, love you. So I'm calling this talk Tears of Joy. And I meant to stuff my sleeves with tissues, <laughs> but I forgot. So we'll see. Uh, in case I move to demonstrate. Um, And I want to thank Jinge Roshi from the bottom of the ocean to the edge of the universe. <laughs> I could spend the whole time talking about that. But you know, <laughs> you know what I'd say, because you all do it too. I'm just so grateful for this Sangha. You truly are a family to me. It's like we've been raised in this weird household. <laughs> <laughs> and we go out into the world, you know, but we come home and we're like, we just have a, a different, you know, kind of raised in this um, different place and it's slightly different values and weird rituals. <laughs> holidays and things that it's hard to explain to anybody who hasn't been raised in this household. So, um, but it's no different either. But you know, it feels that way sometimes when we're out there, and it's good to come in be with you all. And I feel like I could ask anything of you. And we'd say no sometimes, but it's the fact that I feel I could ask you is indicative of the intimacy. And I felt that on the very first day that I came here. And I sat over there, and Jikyo sat next to me. It, it, as, as it turns out, I didn't even realize this, but Jikyo has a lot to do with things that happened to me, as it turns out. And I don't think she always knows that. I don't think I talk about that very much. Some of it I haven't told anybody. So I'm glad to be able to say it now. And a lot of the things I'm saying today I've said before, maybe in other talks or other situations. So um, I'm putting it all together. My greatest hits. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, so it's an important day to me. First of all, 31 years ago, I gave birth to an amazing woman, my daughter, Caitlin. She has spent many birthdays without me because I'm here on her birthday <laughs> most years. But she's in Seattle now, so it's okay. She's gotten over it by now. <laughs> um, and as Roshi said, 20 years ago, at summer session, I received precepts along with my dear sister Jika and my brother Rijitsu and five other people who moved away, but they're still my dumb 
some of them I, I keep in touch with, but some not so much. But they're still in my heart. Um, and I got the name Joraku uh, 20 years ago. And um, Joraku means Samadhi joy. So. And I realized that Roshi, you know, didn't know me real well. I had come a little over a year before that. This wasn't actually my first session, that, that session, I came to two other sessions, but it was my precept session. And um, I think what she knew about me right away was that this practice makes me so happy. It just has from the very start. And I would just, I would just cry in Dokusan and just say, I'm just so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's why I got that name. But I also want to say that when you get a Dharma name, you also get a Microsoft name that in, at some algorithm gives you. But they, it, it, and algorithms know everything in the universe. So you've got to notice your, your Microsoft name. And your Microsoft is your autocorrect name. So when you type in Joraku, it comes up jerk. <laughs> my, my alternative Dharma name is jerk. And it's a really helpful name to have because it's good to be reminded not only that you're happy and you just, you know, experience this samadhi joy, but like you can be a real jerk. Um, so it's good to uh, have that. So I, I suggest you I look it up. Usually when people get go through precepts and I see their Dharma names, I immediately <laughs> So, so yes, 20 years of practice, um, and I'm very happy despite the heartbreak that I might be experiencing, belonging, and it doesn't change. And so I just want to talk about a little bit of how, how this, really a quest for how to live in this world with joy as it is live in this world as it is with joy and compassion even when you might be feeling hopeless and to not carry a, a sentimentality about this joy there's, there's a lot of shit going on right and it's, you well, can't gloss it over. Mm. You have to embrace it. With, with this joy and compassion. So this started for me actually more like 43 years ago. 
And um, I was raised Catholic and um, looked at the world in terms of good and evil. And I just could not watch that cosmic arm wrestling taking place in front of me. And um, I just couldn't live in that world. I had to change the way I processed that world. And so first, my uh, Zen teacher appeared. And it came through, uh, so I was a junior in college, about 20. And um, it came through a class that I took just to fill a requirement. And it was called Evil. So it seemed like a really good class for me to And it was taught by Lou Nordstrom, who was Roshi's first husband. And the reason we have her here, anyway. Um, and it was also taught by Amanda Porterfield, who taught all the Native American classes. And I loved her and took all of those classes. And those classes really informed my, my spirituality. And then I realized I should have been a religion major, but it was just too late. I had changed my major so many times at that point. It was like, OK, just take the classes and go home. But it's interesting that it's all kind of come back to being the most important um, classes that I took this year. And so this is what happened in this class. It was taught by Lou, who gave a, a Buddhist perspective and Amanda Porterfield giving a, a, a Christian perspective. And we just read a lot of novels. We read a novel. And we had to really look at evil in the face. So not just good and evil and who's going to win, um, but what is evil? What is it? And you really look at it and you read these novels and you see this character and you see these things playing out. Where is it? Where is the evil? And it's nowhere. It's nowhere to be found. He talked a lot about emptiness. It was the first time we heard this word emptiness. And none of us got it. Like we, like we just could not understand that. But what I did get out of it was that when you look for the thing that is evil, the thing that is separate, that you can then, you know, destroy or, you know, uh, cure or uh, pull out, right, in order to, for good to win. It's, it's not there. There's nothing there. There's no, nothing to destroy or kill or even rid, you know, from myself. So that I could live with. That I could live with. It's, and with the thing that, the form it was taking at the time was uh, the threat of nuclear war. And as a 20-year-old and uh, was living with my boyfriend, who I still live with today. <laughs> and we were trying to decide, where are we going to live when we graduate? Should we, should we go to New York City and accept this bomb and just joyfully 
look at it, come and just get it over, just accept it? Or should we move to New Zealand and try to survive it? And we were like really thinking of those things because it just seemed like it was, it was going to happen. And um, so this idea of looking at this right in the face gave me this freedom to say, well, what do I want to do? I can decide. It isn't just this evil thing that's happening in the world that I have no control of. You go to New York City, you could go to New Zealand. So we stayed in Syracuse because we couldn't <laughs> But that was okay too. So got on with my life. 20 years go by. Um, and it was, a, it was a good 20 years. You know, I had children and a lot of rich things in my life. But I also came to a lot of things also happened that just really beat me up. A lot of things not working out. And when I came here, I was feeling pretty low about myself. And, um, but, you know, make my, my next sentence here. Shigeroshi, then Roko Osho. Um, and I had this different perspective all these, these years. You know, my children, if, they, if somebody said, what religion are you? My son said, I think we're Buddhist. But, um, you know, I needed a Sangha and I needed a practice. And I did yoga, I had yoga practice, but I really didn't have, you know, a Sangha. I felt people who did yoga or taught yoga, other yoga teachers, they were like the worst people I knew. They were They did, well, really. Like, I, you know, it's, it's very hard to try to make a living at your spiritual practice, you know? And so it just made them terrible people. <laughs> right, so one of them was my, uh, one of them was my friend's boyfriend. And when she didn't want to give up coffee, he punched her in the stomach. Like, he was so angry, like, and then like nasty business things happening in the stealing your place. It's like ah. So, so then I had this practice. I knew what to do. I never I did meditation in those times. And in fact, early on I did have this very moving experience where I just thought really something happened in my brain. Um, so this was back when I was 20 and I just started meditating. And I didn't know there were people meditating like right around the corner from me in, in, uh, in Roshi's attic. If I'd known that, um, I, I don't know what would have happened. Maybe I wouldn't have liked it, so. Just as well, it took that long, but. Um, but I meditated by myself, and, and I know that something, and I just felt this very strong, like, oneness, and drugs were not involved. <laughs> and I know something happened to my brain, because ever since then, I can't tell the difference between right and left. Like, really. Not really. <laughs> so every time I try to say right, I say left. And every time I say left, I want to say left, I say right. So something like, something 
something happened in there. I don't know. Uh, and it's still to this day, I can I say the wrong thing most of the time. I have to really, really try. And then still sometimes I still say it. Um, so I had this practice, and really the answer to happiness, Roshi kind of mentioned it already, was just giving yourself away. I should say that first. So, so when I first came here and I sat there and I was feeling so beat up in my life, um, it was you know first Thursday when we had tea afterwards and introduced myself. And so I sat next to Jikyo. She was like my person to to help me. You know, we didn't really have that whole first sitting where you learn stuff. I just showed up fifteen minutes early, like I was told to, and was told like this is what's going to happen there's going to be three sets and this happens and this happens in this happens and the sit next to gq should tell you and that was fine and the uh i when i heard the heart sutra i just knew i was home it's, it's just like other people get this mm. like, this is where i should be and um so and i remember that gq in once they were having tea um and introduced myself and she said something or she, maybe she even introduced me or something i don't know i remember but she i remember that she said and she sat perfectly <laughs> and and nobody had told me i had done anything perfectly ever in or a very 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 long time and i was like like this place <laughs> but really it was you know a whole other way of looking at who i was and um, it wasn't somebody who like anytime like I didn't want to ever take on any responsibility because somebody else would do it better. Like I don't want to you know put you through the mistakes I'm going to make, so I won't do it. And um, but then when you come here, you have to do it. You know, people say, "Do you want to be assistant Jisha?" And you say, "Yes." I didn't know you couldn't say yes. By the way, <laughs> all these years. I mean, didn't know you couldn't say, couldn't say, uh, no. So, I, <laughs> I still do, but, um, but you know, so you could make mistakes and people would just tell you what they were and that was it. Nothing extra. Mm -hmm. So that made that, that. made a big difference that was like suddenly i'm in this other family and this is how they roll and uh, it's good for me and i remember so basically everything i've learned i've learned in sasan and i realized just have to do sasan and I don't know how people have a spiritual practice without something. How do you love everyone? How do you love the people that drive you crazy? How do you have compassion for your enemy, my friend, the enemy, as the Dalai Lama called the Chinese, my friend, the enemy. How do you do that if you don't sit in Sazen? 
And I remember sitting, this is the time I'm sitting over there. Um, so, the, you know, what are the things that, that make us not happy? What gets in the way of that? And it's, you know, ourselves. We, I sat there and I just got so sick of feeling the way I was feeling. I just got so sick of wanting to beat myself up. And I remember like something happened, I did something and I felt like the habitual, well, now it's time to give yourself a hard time because otherwise you won't learn. Mm. And um, who, who's gonna, who, who, do, who am I beating up? Nobody there to beat up. And the biggest thing that you, I learned from Zazen, of course, comes from pain, right? Sitting in pain. Oh, actually, I wanted to share um, this whole idea of like, you know, wanting to, to beat yourself up, this, 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 just getting sick of this feeling. I, it, there was this New Yorker cartoon that totally resonated with me because this was how I was, I was feeling. And so there's, um, there's a little speck of dust in this void. And the speck of dust says, I wish I were a better speck of dust. <laughs> and, you know, it's so, I, thought, I just was so sick of being this pathetic speck of dust saying, I wish I were a better speck of dust. I'm like, just go be a speck of dust. <laughs> you know? What do you mean? Like, what does that even mean? I wish I were a better, whatever it is. Like, when? Who? There's too many questions around that. But sitting in pain. All right. So, sitting in pain. This is really where I learned joy. Because so it took a long time though. So for you know years, you know you sit in pain and you come to the session and you sit in pain and you'd walk through Kenyon like oh please don't make me sit anymore please. <laughs> you'd sit, and you know Roshi talked quite a bit about it all the time. And you know there's things that she says for years and you just can't hear it. Right? She just says the same thing over and over again, <laughs> and you just can't hear it. And sometimes I feel really bad for her because. <laughs> <laughs> knuckleheads we are sometimes and, and you know just keep saying it we come here <laughs> and so so that's why you know jerk you know good to remember always but um, so she's like pain is the teacher what does it say it says okay that's all, all I could think of is it hurts, right? And poor me, poor me. And, even, and of course, we all sit together. So we know that we're all poor and we're all doing this. So that helps a lot, you know, but still, it's still like putting up with it, right? It's still just like being stoic and like muscle through this because they're so tough instead of this other way of thinking about it. 
which it took several years for me. To, but one day, and I was sitting over there, remember? I think I must have been joking because I was in session and was sitting pretty close to the altar, which I wouldn't have done unless I was joking. So I was, that's how long it took that time I was joking. It was quite a few years. And um, I thought, well, what is, you know, the same thing of like looking into this thing that you think is evil, you think is, you know, don't want it. Get it out, kill it, cut it out, rid it from the world. Can't be in this world if I'm going to like this world. So what if I just, so I just sat with it without judging the sensation. This, as if I were a newborn baby. So a newborn baby, you feel this sensation. What is this sensation in my knee? Where is it taking me? And then the bell rang. <laughs> and I was like, oh, darn it. I wanted to see where it was going to take me. But, you know, of course, I had plenty other opportunities. But that was it. I never felt like I was experiencing something negative or that I wanted to stop. It was just this sensation. Just forget what you think about it, right? That it's just open to it as it is. And I just never really experienced what I would call, you know, that, that pain ever again. And so then you're so free. I don't walk in Kenya and say, please don't make me sit down anymore. Just Kenya sitting. And sometimes you feel this sensation that's pretty intense. Like I remember in the winter, like sometimes in the winter, it's like, oh, I feel like my body's on, there's this ring of fire and it's warming and that's <laughs> all right. I feel good. And then sometimes in the summer, I feel like, wow, I could pass out. I feel woozy. And um, this heat that I'm generating from this sensation. And I think, well, I'm either going to pass out or the bell is going to ring. So, okay, either one. I'll just sit and wait and see what happens. You breathe. I might have a little secret fantasy that it's pass out. And then somebody takes me away in an ambulance. <laughs> I don't have to come back, but just briefly. And then um, the bell rings. Never passed out. The bell rings and it's over. And then you know, once you do that, you can just apply that to everything in your life, everything that you don't like in your life, and it's so freeing. And when you're free, you just feel happy. You take the poor me out of the equation. And you can do anything. And it's not like at first, at first I felt like, oh, this is like a superpower. <laughs> so I can go anywhere, do anything. But it's not really something I got, right? It's something let go of. It's that poor me, I think, is the thing I let go of mostly. And these ideas about what's a negative experience, what's pain, what are we 
So I just learned to apply this to, you know, the sorrow or frustration or heartbreak and anger. Where will it take me? So 20 years of sitting, well, not 20, because it took me a while to get to that, but um, you know, just taking on these challenges and difficulties. Um, they really aren't, you know, after hearing your talk, I, I, like, I feel like I was totally shut up about any of the difficulties that I've had, because nothing has been like you've been experiencing. But I, but the fact that it's these are so, somewhat mundane is kind of the point that they totally would grip me. And, um, you know, always that same pattern where you're just gripped with anxiety. Something happens, something going on. And one thing, I'll share this one thing that I had this tenant and the tenant um, is renting a house for my mom. And um, first my daughter lived there with her friends and then they moved out and we got other people to take some of the rooms and then she moved out. And so I had to fill a room really of a house with other people in it. And I found this older guy, but I thought, well, he seemed like really good and responsible and maybe he'd kind of be like an adult in the house and it would be okay. And oh my God, it was the most horrible experience. He was um, really, he just immediately, I started getting texts from the other tenants, like he's doing disgusting things in the bathroom. He stole things from people and couldn't prove it. Um, and then he lost his job and he stopped paying rent. And I had to evict him. And, um, you know, so first you have to just do stuff like that. And, um, but I just was so gripped by the anxiety over it because I felt guilty about it. And um, I couldn't breathe. I, I just, I couldn't, I, I just, until he was out of the house, I couldn't rest. You know, so I was just gripped with this. And um, it was, you know, it takes a long time to evict somebody. It's a lot of stuff that has to happen. And, and he was really good at avoiding it. It's just, oh, it just went on and on. And I just spent a lot of time in this state. And I was um, sitting over there. <laughs> and Jikyo came around with Teisaku. And And I just went, <sighs> it was like a newborn baby. I just felt like I took this breath, like that's why your poem that you shared was so uh, great for me. I mean, it took me right back to that place of, I just felt like I moved in with my lungs and they said, where have you been all this time? I was in my mind, get this done, you know, go call the lawyer. Da, da, da and uh, feeling terrible about it. And between those two things, nothing working. I was just so gripped by it. And then, open it. And then it was fine. He's gonna go out and you know, we'll get it done. It's gonna take a time. It's gonna take what it takes. And um, that was a big learning for me at that time because you know, many things are like that. You just want them over. You want them better. You want them fixed. 
It just takes time. And sometimes the more you try to fix it, the worse that it gets. Um, very recently, um, the things that I've been dealing with at the university was that we had this hate language um, infiltrated in our social media, our ways of um, you know, Discord server, it's how we would communicate with each other. So first, somebody just started writing, you know, kind of came in and, uh, you know, wasn't one of the Sangha and um, said like silly things pretty much about Buddhists. Well, said he was an atheist and that religion was stupid and, um, or didn't say stupid, he said, um, I can't think of it. One of these words young people use these days. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, wow. you know, yeah, kind of like that. It wasn't that, something like that. And so you know, basically, I agreed with them, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm an atheist, and I, I think religion is kind of whack too, but, you know, um, but, you know, and then, you know, so I just sort of, you know, skillful means thought I could just, you know, help this person. I said, you should come talk to me. I'm, the, I'm actually the atheist person at the university for atheist students have been trying to bring them into the chapel because you know because people think that Hendricks Chapel is church and I want all students welcome you know, so I've been actually working very hard at this um so we started you know but he just would ignore anything I said and then well, how many atheists and then eventually you know then it turned violent and um and I was like, like, oh, I'm going to be killed by an atheist now. Like, of all the things I've gone through, I'm going to now get killed by somebody because he's an atheist. Wow. But so it, when it first happened, um, you know, we it, actually the first violent thing was quite violent and like just shook us all up. I went to the dean and um, with a student and we shared it, we called the police and um, the Department of Social, uh, Safety. And somebody came and he said, yeah, I'm really sorry this happened to you. It, it happens all the time. So, you know, don't worry about it. And I thought, okay, well, all right, good, good. Don't worry about it. And then, um, I guess I feel better. Uh, then we left. And then, um, and then it turned out that the person, then we've got some more information. Somebody from one club was, or from our club, shared it with somebody else from a different club. And that person, oh, I recognize that. That person did the same thing to our club. And he had actually been dismissed by the university for hate language. But before I knew that, I thought, well, he's on campus. And this is a different, that's a game changer right there. So we went back and we called the police and they took it very seriously then and we had a very you know, intense investigation. But the Sangha, the student Sangha is just so wonderful. They're so good to each other. They're so close. They're so supportive of each other. We just all came together and we just kept doing what we did. We kept doing meditations. We had uh, Koshin come as a speaker, uh, Koshin Paley Ellison. We've been working on for like three years to get him to come, and we could have canceled, but we didn't. 
And, you know, we had police presence, we had things to make us safe, but we also just gave ourselves completely to each other. Like whatever you need. If I just made sure students knew, if you are feeling scared, I'll come get you. I'll you know, stay at my house, whatever you need. Don't think anything is silly because we don't know. And it's very much just like something that's in your head. Maybe it's not anything, but maybe it is. And, um, you know, it got very personal. Um, he said he would message individual students. Say, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. Um, one of the students had actually been threatened by her ex-boyfriend as well. So she was really triggered by this. And, um, but we just came together. And every, like this song, like, I just know I could ask anything of you. And all students felt the same way about that situation. And so we could just go on. Um, and the things kept coming. Some people felt like, well, maybe I'll do my meditation on Zoom. One person did it early in the morning and she's the only one in the building. And you, you know, got on people's Instagram accounts and saw their pictures, knew what they look like. So it was creepy. Um, but, and you know, this kind of goes back to this idea of evil because, you know, in, when somebody does shoot people in mass shooting, you'd say, oh, that, what could we have done? I can think of some things we could have done. We could have, we could take mental health seriously. We could, every time it's somebody who is alienated and lonely and um, desperate, it's a suicide attempt. Because nobody expects to get away with that. Um, so I still think of this person that did this. Once he stopped doing it, we changed our server. He couldn't get in. He went away, out of our consciousness. But I'm wondering about him. Where is he? He did say, I'm coming to the temple in Syracuse to kill you. So um, But then he said, I'm not really going to kill you. So don't worry about it. And then he'd say he would. And by the way, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. It's considered freedom of speech by his friend. Got away, and he just said he got away with it. He just, you know, big in, we knew who it was, big investigation, search warrant, all this stuff. Still couldn't prove it somehow. I don't know. Um, but all this time, just these things happening, just holding holding each other and feeling free because we have that. Okay. Oh, it's getting late. I wanted to share this um, this other thing um, again, Chikyo uh, helped me with this in taking uh, this class and foundations of contemplative care where you learn to to sit with people who are dying or ill and um, be present how to be intimate with people 
And I have to tell you about my interview with Koshin, the, the director of, uh, or one of the co-founders of Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Um, so, you know, I filled out my application and, you know, asked me all these questions and, you know, I have all these great experiences that I've done. And I'm like, oh, have I gotten the perfect candidate for this class? I've done this and I've done that. And, and then it got to self-care. That was the last question. I'm no good at that. So, okay, so a little concession here, and this is my, my weakness that, you know, I'm like, my friends used to call me the pillar of strength. Right, I just hold other people. I don't take care of myself. Um, and you know, you had talked about self care yesterday, and I, I did my project on it, and um, started out like, this is what self care is on the internet, right? And it's ridiculous. No wonder I can't do it, right? It's ridiculous. And that was my little excuse um, until I realized self care is, you know our vows, save all beings, extinguish all delusion, taking care of yourself, mastering the dharma, including everything, including yourself, and following the Buddhist way. How else can, how better can you take care of yourself than that? And then drink a lot of water as well, because I'm very bad at that. In fact, 10 after 4, I haven't even had any water. So I went into my interview. I'm like, well, okay, there's a self-care thing, but we'll just talk about all that other stuff. And like, we'll just like get it all, you know, we'll like really get along and I'll be getting to this program. And he just looked at me and he said, I was just so, felt so much compassion for you. You said about how you felt about self-care. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I look away. And he like totally calls me out on look looking away. He's like, what where are you? What are you doing here? It's like, this is unraveling quickly. <laughs> and I at first I had to go to New York City for this interview, which of course was Dokasan. It's in the Dokasan room. And you're in there, and I'm like, oh, I'm not even going to get into this class. I said, I said, you know, going to New York, stay, you know, staying over, going to the 15 minutes, we were like done. Like, wow. And um, why, why, why do you look away? When you look away, really breaking this intimacy you have with people. How can you look at, how can you sit with people who are dying? If you look away, how is that like you? And um, I learned so much in those, you know, ten horrible minutes. And then I thought, like, I can't, you know, I traveled five hours and I've got to go home on this long bus, and I've been here ten minutes and we're done. So I just sat there a while, looked at him. I couldn't leave. We talked about Syracuse a little bit then, because he's from Syracuse. And um, started over, and then uh, things bloomed from there. And I did get into the class, <laughs> but it really made me realize how 
how I avoid intimacy with people. And getting over that was a big thing. And when you sit with people who are dying and you talk to people who are dying, you know, you learn a lot about life. They, you know, they, they never say, well, I have to do this quick version of this. But, um, you know, they never say, oh, I wish I, I wish I were, had been more stingy in my life. I wish, I wish I wasn't so loving. You know, I wish I had taken more of other things. You know, which I taken more from other people instead of them giving. Nobody ever says that. Quite the opposite. I wanted to say something of getting back to emptiness, and I'll just do a quick thing. Uh, one thing we read in that class uh, was the way of tenderness by Zenju Earthwind Manuel. And she called emptiness an uncluttered heart. And um, I have a lot to say about clutter and intimacy. It's clutter, uh, I'm, I'm teaching, I'm doing a workshop on, on clutter your life, it's called. And it's about physical clutter, because physical clutter gets in the way. You can't find the thing you need because of this, all this other stuff that's in the way. And, you know, electronic clutter, we can't, you know, find, you know, we missed the important email because we have a million junk emails. Um, at a time where I was um, staying home with my kids and I was writing a lot and I wrote essays about staying home with your kids and I wrote one about clutter um, and I said that like one of the things is that don't let stuff in your house like, just don't let it in in the first place <laughs> you need a, uh, a customs officer at the door and the, anybody who comes like what do you have with you what do you <laughs> Has it ever lived in the ocean? Um, no, it can't be. And, um, you know, junk mail, don't even bring it into your house. Because it's hard to get rid of once it's in. And so then there's the spiritual clutter, right? The emptiness of your heart, right? And what's the, the stuff that gets in the way, and this has been the main thing that I've been working on, is all the clutter of my heart. So the feelings of inferiority, superiority, pretty much the same, besides the same coin as you go, right? That's how we express that, either one way or the other. Um, how are we in relation with people? Um, envy, right? Um, you talked about deserving what people deserve right you know, we usually i usually feel that i did not get what i deserved right there was a lot of things i should have gotten that i didn't get right and one of my biggest things that helped me be happy is believing that everybody gets what they deserve <laughs> everybody gets what they deserve because you don't know right we think we know that oh, i deserve this and you don't deserve it and you know like just Everybody gets what they deserve. 
because there's a lot, something much bigger going on than our little way of thinking about it, right? Like I worked, I did this and I did this and I'm supposed to get that and that's how it's supposed to be. Who says? Um, so just getting rid of all those things that don't really exist. And then that's how you can be with people. Get that clutter out of the way. All right, well, I should end. I wanted to talk about my relationship with sadness. Because I used to cry when I was a kid because it felt good. And it felt cleansing. And um, to be happy when you're sad. And that became my mantra at one point. Right. I used to think, I get in the shower and it's like, I feel sad. I'm like, why do you think you feel sad? Why do you feel sad? You're not. You have a very good life. You have nothing to be sad about. But I felt really sad. And then I realized I was happy to be sad. Because it's all one. All one thing. And it can't really be separated. You're happy, sad, good, evil, can't really be separated. One big thing. So I will end when I think of happy, sad, one, Trying to end, and I'll you can join me in this taking a deep breath. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.